been fun, this influencer series. I hope you've been having fun and learning about these folks of the faith who've taught us and instructed us and guided us and encouraged us, influenced us. And of course, the whole point is to not only know of them and about them, but also to recognize we, too, are influencers ourselves, and that as followers of Jesus, we have an obligation, really, to influence the world. And so it's been a great joy to participate in this. We've, we've learned about the Apostle Paul and the fact that, quite literally, we wouldn't be here if it hadn't been for his prolific writings and the ways in which he helped uh, establish new churches and set forth a new pathway for the faith. Uh, we might not know what commitment looks like and or compassion and kindness without Monica uh, that we learned about a few weeks ago and the way she literally set a course for the early church and how she became the patron saint of moms and wives and, and what that looked like, right? And then, of course, last week, Pastor Doug did a great job of helping us understand about Martin Luther and his wife, Katrina, and that we wouldn't take this book as seriously had it not been for his reformation and the ways in which he helped place the Bible in our everyday hands rather than simply the priests. And so what a gift that's been. Today, we're going to learn about some, uh, two people that are somewhat known to us, one maybe more than the other, but John and Susanna Wesley. They are sort of the pioneers and perfectors of this tradition called Methodism, and uh, I'm excited that we're going to learn a little bit more about them and the ways they helped to influence because they really did set a course to change the world and establish an entire movement. So today, uh, what we know about John, of course, is we, we um, recognize that he established the Methodist movement. And in the Methodist movement, what you may not know is that there's over 80 different denominations that claim spiritual heritage with John Wesley. Did you know that? I mean, it's not just United Methodism. Perhaps you've heard of some of the other traditions, the Wesleyan Church, the Church of the Nazarene, the Holiness Movement, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the Christian Methodist Episcopal Church, and so many more. There are more than 80 million adherents within the Methodist movement. Did you know that John Wesley established what you and I now refer to generally as small groups? He started the class meetings, and those have transformed into everything from Sunday schools to life groups to Bible studies. He was a pioneer in that. It didn't really exist before John Wesley. He was one of the original persons to help take the church out of the four walls of the church into the world and help people know what the gospel of Jesus Christ was all about. And so he, he literally transformed the movement by taking it outside of the walls of the church. All of this is the man that is our spiritual father within this tradition called the Methodist movement. But you've also got to know that you cannot talk about John Wesley without talking about his mama, Susanna. Because Susanna Wesley, as we see here on the screen, uh, was an amazing um, person to help lead John and his family into followership of Christ to better understand who Jesus was himself and what it meant to be his follower. And so um, when we talk about Susanna, you just need to know a couple of things right up front that I find fascinating. You may not, but I do. One is Susanna is the daughter of a, of a preacher. He was an Anglican preacher in the Church of England, and he was what's known as a dissenter. He, he really didn't appreciate the, the Church of England at the time. This would have been the late 1600s. And so he dissented and established another kind of church. But did you know Susanna was the 25th child of her parents? Hello. This was clearly before the age of the Internet and television, right? She was the last one. Finally, they figured it out. I think it took 25 kids to figure out how this stuff works. 
but she was the 25th kid. And then what you also need to know is that when uh, Susanna met Samuel, John and Charles' father, he was an Anglican priest as well. And he was the son of an Anglican priest, and he would produce several other Anglican priests too. But Susanna and Samuel Wesley had 19 children. A sad fact is that nine of those 19 died in infancy. So she only got to raise 10 of her 19 children. But Susanna was a force to be reckoned with. She was a mighty woman with a mighty faith and a, a, an outstretched arm that would help people to know of compassion and care, and she would sort of instill this in her ten children. You know, some of the traditions she had, some of you may be familiar with, uh, she believed that up until the age of five, a child ought to be a child, should just play and have fun and, and just uh, enjoy life. But once they turned five, they would enter into her homeschooling. And so, Susanna, every day, in fact, six out of seven days a week, the children, once they turned five, were together with her, and from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., they would learn. They would learn the Bible. They would learn Greek. They would learn Latin. They would learn history and certainly mathematics and reading. And she would teach them six out of seven days. They would take a two-hour break in the middle, but still nine to five, six days a week. She would also take one hour uh, giving individual attention to each of her children throughout the seven days. And so each child would get one-on-one -on -one attention for one hour a day, uh, and she was able to commit to that to help them know that she cared about them and loved them. And then she had another practice that I really loved. She was a prayer. She would inculcate this into John and Charles' life as well, but uh, Susanna would pray two hours every single day. Sometimes in the morning, sometimes in the evening, sometimes before the kids got up, sometimes after they went to bed. But she instructed the kids that if they were awake and they saw mom with her apron from her dress wrapped up over her face, she was in prayer, leave her alone. Now, here's what I believe. I don't know this for a fact at all, but here's what I believe. I think that there were times when Susanna was sleeping. That's what I think. I don't know that. But I bet in the middle of those prayers with 10 children on your hands, there was a little bit of nap time going on every once in a while. Don't bother mom when the, when the you know, hood is up, right? But here's another thing you need to know about Susanna. She wrote commentaries on the Lord's Prayer, on the Apostles' Creed, on the Ten Commandments. She was well-published. She was an intellect beyond compare, deeply passionate about her faith in Jesus and wanted her kids to know. Now, Samuel, her husband, he was an Anglican priest, as I mentioned, and evidently not exactly the, the sharpest tool in the tool shed, and uh, he was the rector at Epworth for over 30 years. And every once in a while, people, you know, were not exactly enamored by his preaching. But every once in a while, he would go out of town to train other preachers. This is how trainers of preachers work, right? If you can't do it, then you, you train other people. That's how that works. So, oh, did I say that out loud? Yeah, sorry. Anyway, when Samuel went off for several months, he was actually defending one of his uh, colleagues who was up on heresy trial. And so Samuel went out of town, and um, now Susanna was very gracious to Samuel. She would never tell him he wasn't a good preacher, but she would tell the guy who came in to replace him while he was gone he wasn't a very good preacher. In fact, because she didn't care for this guy that came in as a temporary, um, she literally started a Bible study in her house after church every day because she felt like she wasn't getting any Scripture. She felt as though she wasn't getting her faith enlivened. So she had, they would sing, they would pray, they would study Scripture, they would have basically a worship service. And within two months, 
The townspeople had heard about this, so, so much so that within two months, 200 people were gathering at her church service that was in the middle of the afternoon. Susanna was a force to be reckoned with. She was a powerful purveyor of the faith. She was someone who transmitted to her sons, John and Charles, and certainly to the other eight children, how important it was to follow Christ and to live a life worthy of attention. I'm convinced that this passage was a part of her uh, faith tradition, Galatians chapter 2. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is Paul, of course, writing to the churches in Galatia and trying to help them understand that when he is a follower of Christ, he gives his whole self to him. His life is no longer his own, but he is a follower of Christ and a slave to him. And I'm convinced that was Susanna as well. So Susanna sets John up for success. She helps him to know that he is well-loved, that he is well-cared for, and that he too can be a follower of Christ. John was born in 1703. Uh, he was the 15th child of these 19 that were born. Charles, his brother, would be the 17th of the 19 children born. And um, they were brought up in the rectory. Have we seen Charles, uh, John, I mean? Have we seen John? Here's a picture of John. This is later in his life. This is one of the most famous pictures of John. But growing up in the rectory, you can well imagine that, you, you, you know, that's the church home, right? The parsonage or sometimes referred to as the man's. And while he grew up in the rectory, um, there were two times that the rectory caught on fire. And tradition has it that it caught on fire by church members who did not like Samuel. We don't know that for a fact, but history tells us that there's a likelihood that that took place. And the second time the rectory caught on fire, John was the only one left. Everybody else managed to get out, but at age six, he couldn't quite make it. And so uh, another family member went and got him, and he claims in his later life that he was like a brand plucked from the fire. And he realized even early on that he was set apart to serve God, that he was set apart and called to be a, a, a sharer of the faith of Jesus Christ. And so from that age forward, he would be committed to be a follower of Christ and a sharer of the gospel of the good news of Jesus. So much so he would go to Oxford, he would become a fellow, and while he was there with his brother Charles, another guy named Whitfield, uh, George Whitfield, they developed a group of, of uh, fellow students who would meet weekly to pray and to read Scripture, to, to hold one another accountable, to encourage one another. And this was so odd at Oxford at the time that his classmates would refer to them as the Holy Club the holy club, because they felt like they, the, the, the other students felt somehow they were holier than thou. That was not the purpose. The purpose was to live the faith, to be committed to the faith, to challenge one another in the faith, to lift each other up. Do you know where the name Methodist came from? That same gathering of people. It was so methodical, their classmates said, you guys are just a bunch of Methodists. You just do things methodically. And the nomer just stuck. And so today, unlike the Presbyterians and the Episcopalians and the Baptists who all have biblical names for their cohort, we're just called the Methodists because we are methodical in how we do things. I don't know if we're so methodical anymore, but uh, we'll claim it, right? So while they were there in school, um, John and Charles and several of the others who were part of this holy club literally committed themselves every day to be faithful to pray, 
to offer the good news. And it was in and through this time that John began to become well-known as a preacher. Even though he was a part of the Church of England, he would often go into out of doors and to uh, the, the public spaces to help proclaim the good news. He would, in fact, uh, become a huge abolitionist against slavery. He would become a massive advocate for women in leadership in the church, having learned from his mother how that could be true. And he would also publish thousands of books. He would become an author uh, beyond compare, and he would become well-known as the as the uh, person who would begin this movement that he had no intentions of creating. Do you know that John remained a Church of England uh, priest his entire life? He never desired a new movement, a new denomination. He had no intentions. He wanted to revitalize the church. He wanted to renew the church. He wanted to create within the church a new movement of, of people on fire for the gospel, on people who wanted to share that good news with others. And so I just want to share a couple of the lasting legacies that John leaves for you and me some 280 years after uh, his passing. The first, you might well know, John was an amazing evangelist. He, he was someone who could share the good news of Christ with anybody at any place at any time. In fact, he would, he would uh, literally sort of mark tens of thousands of miles by horseback across both England and all of the neighboring uh, communities there. And he even came to America in Georgia, uh, the state, what is now the state of Georgia, in 1835. He was a miserable failure in Georgia. He came to share the good news with the native indigenous folks, and uh, they would have nothing of it. He, he got a little put out by that. He did not have the kindest of regards for Georgia, and he came back to England. But from that point forward, John was immensely successful at sharing the good news of the gospel of Christ. What he wanted people to know was what the Apostle Paul would share uh, in many occasions, but the most well-known of which is in Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul describes how it is we're saved and the way in which that transpires, right? For, uh, for by grace you have been saved by faith. And this is not of your own doing. This is a gift of God, right? In other words, it's free. All we need to do is believe. All we need to do is profess. All we need to do is claim that. So John would spend every hour of his waking days trying to help people know this good news. For by grace you have been saved by faith. Now, the other thing that John would try to help uh, inculcate into the society is what we now refer to as scriptural and personal holiness. And all that really means is we take this book seriously, and we not only know what the book says, but we also apply it to our daily lives, scriptural and personal holiness. John would believe the words in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that talks about all Scripture being inspired by God, and that the, the, the words of Scripture are good for teaching and for reproofing and for correcting and for helping us know and train in righteousness, because the book is helpful. John would say, I am a, a man of una, una libre, one book. Now, he wrote hundreds of books, but he was a man of this book. He would read thousands of books. He was a very good intellect, deeply trained, highly educated, but he would say, this is my book and this is the book that guides me. But he would say it's not enough just to know what the words say. It's not enough to just memorize what's here. One must not only know what is here, but apply it to our lives. That's the personal holiness. He would say over and over again, we must live the gospel. We must become the gospel. 
I'm convinced that uh, John would uh, help us to better apply what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatian church in Galatians chapter 5. You know it is the fruit of the Spirit that we ought to be about love and joy, peace and patience, kindness and gentleness, generosity and faithfulness and self-control, that followers of Jesus ought to be known by these things, that when people see you having said, I'm a follower of Jesus, having professed faith in who Christ is, that people ought to see and know in you love and joy and peace and patience and all of those fruit, because that's what applying God's Word does. It claims for us a way of being. It's not just something we know intellectually. It's something we know in our heart and in our bodies and in our living. That would be very important for John. And so it was always a, he would call it knowledge and vital piety, knowledge of the Word, knowledge of understanding, and then vital piety is just his, his way of saying, this is how we live. We pray regularly, we read Scripture regularly, we worship God regularly, we serve people, and we witness to the gospel. And man, that sounds so close to the five-fold membership vow that when we join this church or any other United Methodist church, we commit to prayers, presence, gifts, service, and witness because that's a way of being and it demonstrates the fruit of the Spirit. Now, there are three theological concepts. There are many others, but three that kind of continue through all of the Wesleyan strains, and we don't often hear about them anymore, and so I want to make sure that you understand them and know them because you might have heard the concepts but not fully recognize what they were. One of the primary components of Wesleyan tradition and theology of Scripture is what's known as regeneration. You ever heard that word, regeneration? It's a powerful word. You may just know by the etymology, right? Re, again, generation, to generate, to be generative. It means to be born again. But it doesn't just mean a one-time occurrence to be born again, as some believe, but rather it means that I must be born again every day, that I must claim that God is regenerating me every day and renewing my spirit and renewing my faith and renewing my understanding of who Jesus is. John Wesley was a huge um, fan of the book of Romans, as was Martin Luther. It's interesting, these influencers really loved Paul's letter to Rome, and it's because it's so foundational theologically. And a part of what John Wesley realized as he read this book was that there was something deeply innate about our faith in God and how it claims our heart. And so when we read, for instance, Romans chapter 10, he, uh, Paul acknowledges when he writes to the church at Rome that if I will confess with my lips that Jesus Christ is Savior and have faith that God has raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. And a part of what John Wesley helps us to remember is that's the beginning of a journey, to confess with our mouth and to believe in our hearts that Christ has been raised from the dead. And that begins this process called regeneration so that I, I am no longer the person I was yesterday in Christ, and tomorrow I'll be an even different person in Christ because I'm growing in relationship with Him. In fact, when we talk about it in the United Methodist tradition, we don't talk about um, um, that I am saved. In other words, I, I'm done, I've been, I am, I am saved. We say we are being saved because it's a process. It's a journey. It's not a destination. It's a it's a process by which God is working on our hearts and developing our souls and claiming us for richer relationship every single day. You ought to be able to say, today I was born again. 
and tomorrow to say the same. I, I've been born again. I've been born anew. And I have a rich and deeper understanding of Jesus today than even what I had yesterday. And that only comes by that scriptural and personal holiness that claims our lives. The second thing that John left us with is one that we really struggle with. And every time we talk about it, man, we just kind of pucker up. This, this theological concept is called perfection. Have you heard of it? Perfection. And this concept of perfection, man, when we first hear it, we go, I can't do that. I, I'm, not, I'm not perfect. I'll never be perfect. That won't work. I just need you to know what John meant, what the Apostle Paul meant, what Jesus meant when they all referred to this concept was not that we become without fault, that we become without sin, that we become without blemish. That's not the concept of perfection. That's what we think of, right? I can't be perfect. When Jesus says, as Matthew records it in Matthew chapter 5, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is imperfect, and we all go, yeah, that's not going to happen. I can't do that. But when you read the verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 40 to 48, notice what Jesus is referring to. He's referring to God's love of humanity and God's love uh, for humanity and that we need to love like that. And ultimately, this is what perfection is. One of the foundational scriptures that John Wesley would use is Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, where it literally just says, therefore, go on to perfection, laying aside the simple or straightforward or basic teachings of Jesus. And all he means there is move beyond simply knowing that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. That's a great starting point, but move beyond that. Move toward loving your neighbor as yourself. Move towards loving God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Move towards living the, the, the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience. Move on toward perfection. In the Greek, that word literally means spiritual maturity. Become more mature. Leave behind the third grade Sunday school lesson. You're older than that. You're more mature than that. You know more than that. You understand more than that. You've got a richer relationship with Jesus than that. Move on, Paul would say. John Wesley would promote. It's why John would also be a, a big fan of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi that talks a lot about how we understand moving on to spiritual maturity. In Philippians chapter 2, for instance, uh, Paul would say to the Philippians, keep on working toward completing your salvation with fear and trembling. That suggests it's a process, right? Keep on working towards completing that. You claimed faith in Jesus. You understood that He was your Lord and Savior. Now live that in your daily world and help others to come to know that as well. Move on toward perfection. You know, every United Methodist clergy, when they are ordained, have to answer several questions, but two of them I've shared with some of you before. The first one is, are you moving on to perfection? And of course, you must say yes. And that's a relatively easy question to answer, though it's a challenge, right? Are we moving on to perfection? I hope I am. I hope I'm getting a little more spiritually mature. I hope I'm regenerative, uh, regenerating on a regular basis, right? But then there's a second follow-up question that really makes you stand up straight and wonder. Here's the question. Do you expect to be made perfect in this lifetime? <laughs> yes. If you don't answer yes, you don't get ordained. If you don't believe the response is true, you shouldn't answer it. Why would they ask that question? Can we reach 
perfection in this lifetime? And the answer is yes. You can love the way God loves you. You can love God with your whole heart, mind, and soul, and strength. You can love your neighbor as yourself. It is possible. We've just got to strive after it. It's real, it's true, and it can happen. This is a part of our Wesleyan tradition. Ultimately, the thing that John leaves us uh, is a concept called assurance. You love that hymn, Blessed Assurance, don't you? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, right? I mean, we love that song, and it sings of that theology that John wants us to know that he discovered in a very real and tangible way. You may know of what's called the, uh, the Aldersgate experience. On Aldersgate Lane in 1738, on May the 24th, that's two days from now, I want you to mark Tuesday of this week, and I want you to mark Aldersgate Day. I want you to celebrate it because it's that conversion experience that John Wesley had that radically changed him and changed the movement we know as Methodism. Because up until this point, John had his uh, head between his tail because he, he didn't do very well in Georgia. He hadn't been very successful about evangelizing. He didn't know how he needed to move forward. And he went to a, a Bible study on the book of Romans where Martin Luther's preface to the book of Romans was being taught. He didn't really want to go. He was kind of reticent, but he went anyway. And the next day, he wrote in his own personal journal these words. It was about 8.45, he said, and while he, meaning the, the, the speaker, was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Jesus, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. He was now sure that he was a child of God. He was now certain that his sins had been forgiven. He was now absolutely positive that God loved him, even him. And it would change the way he would preach. It would change the way he would teach. It would change the way he helped people to encounter God's Spirit. And it was based in part on this portion of Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16, Paul says, You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to lead you back again into fear, but you received a spirit that shows you you are adopted as his children. With this spirit we cry, Abba, Father. The same spirit agrees with our spirit that we are God's children. Friends, you can be assured that God loves you. You can be certain that God can forgive you. You can be sure that God wants to save your life and others with the powerful love of Jesus. These are the legacies of John Wesley, and we live and bask in their joy and their giftedness for us as we share this good news with others. So John was an influencer, right? One of the best, and we are his legacy as United Methodist followers of Jesus, just like all of the other Wesleyan strains. So what does this mean for us? What do we need to do, and how can we influence others? I just want to leave you with three simple guidelines. They're all from John. The first is simply this. 
be a follower of Jesus. We say, I'm already here, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I say it's not enough to know. It's not enough to come here, but we must be. Be is an active verb, right? Demonstrate the love. Demonstrate the joy. Share the kindness. Be merciful. Demonstrate peace and patience. Be a follower of Jesus, and it will transform other people. The second is this, become more in love with Jesus every day. You see, the first is about scriptural and personal holiness. Be a follower of Jesus. The second, become more in love with Jesus, is about perfection and regeneration and assurance. And we can have all of them as we become more in love with Jesus every single day. And then finally, share the love of Jesus. This was at the heart of everything John did. You too can share with your family, with your neighbors, with your coworkers and colleagues, with anybody around the world. What a gift it would be if we would simply be and become and share. Because here's the reality, friends. Not only are Paul and Monica and uh, Martin and Susanna and John influencers for us, but you're influencers for others. And because of that, you and I need to do something about our faith. Share it. Live it. Become it. Be an influencer. It will be God's gift for you and to the world. And what a blessing that will be. Will you pray with me? Holy and loving God, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. Thank you for the powerful influence of Susanna and John Wesley, for the wonderful ways that they demonstrated faith and lived it every single day. God, help us, give us courage to do the very same thing. Lord, every single day, may we try to genuinely be an influencer for Jesus in what we say and what we do and how we love and how we live. May it be so this day and the next. God, this is our prayer, and we lift it in the name of the one Jesus whom we know to be the Christ. Amen.